0: and 8.30 p.m. right here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. That's it. It's time for Living Writers. I will see you next week.
1: At last, David Sedaris comes on Living Writers. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm T. Hetzel, and you're listening to Living Writers, and today in the studio, David Sedaris. Um, welcome, David.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Do you always start with Etta James?
1: No, I just, uh, I just picked Etta for you today.
2: Oh. <laughs> Is that all right? Yes. <laughs> She'll be going through the
1: program with us.
2: You know, I, I just got her last CD, out of the library. It was really good.
1: Was it like a, a the sort of the collection? One?
2: No, Whereas no. The, it was this? almost like, it almost sounded a little bit country. And it sounded really good. I, I was just at my library in, um, in Kensington. And, and, and they have a music section there. And I picked it up because I always loved her. And it was, it was really good.
1: Huh, I'll, have to, I'll have to go to my library and do that too that's how I find, that's how I get them as well, that's how I got this one actually it was from the library um, not to say that, yeah
2: but people <laughs> often apologize like they'll say, oh I got your book but from the library and then they act apologetic perfectly happy with people getting things from the library no problems whatsoever with that
1: is it because over 22 million copies have been sold of your books
2: <laughs> could be that I don't really need the money but I think oh, it's no. I think it's that just that I was I've always been a big library user, and I completely understand. Not everybody can afford to walk into a bookstore, and then take a chance on a book they've never by an author they've never heard of, or a book that maybe it's not uh, it's not something they would originally think is their type of thing, right? So here's a a true life adventure story, right? But not everybody can say "Eh, it's only thirty bucks, right? So, but one thing I don't believe in is I don't believe in people who reserve books at the library. I don't think that's fair. I think you need to go to the library and, oh, and take your chances along with everyone else. I don't think it's fair to call the library and say, oh, I want that new, I don't know, Frank McCourt book. Put it aside for me.
1: But then isn't it sort of like, aren't they sort of getting theirs in a way because then they have to wait forever until they can, because there's like there a 125th on the list of people who want
2: no, but I think there's a type of person that makes sure that they're always on that list. That's true. <laughs> like I think they get Publishers Weekly, and they see what's coming out, and then they call their library and reserve it right away.
1: Or ask them to even order it, probably. Or, well, no, hopefully the libraries are buying it, right, if it's in Publishers Weekly. Um, what was your first library experience, you know, as, as a kid? Or...
2: Interestingly, I my mother used to take us to the library on weekends when I lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I remember being in... I believe I was in the fifth grade and it was a Saturday and it was raining outside and my mother took my older sister and I to the library and I used a men's room in the basement of the library and I opened the door and there were two black men having sex in the bathroom. And they didn't threaten me in any way. I frightened them uh, and they left shortly afterwards. But I remember thinking, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. I always thought it was my idea to do that with another guy's penis i always thought that it was just completely my own private idea and i thought i'm not alone you could be go- going to the public library <laughs> more often you're, suddenly
1: your mom was like why are you so but that's a huge deep, but you're thing. not even finishing the books no it is i don't mean, I mean to, it's no it's a huge uh, thing to yeah.
2: learn at the library because oh, right. <laughs> at that time in north carolina there were no books about homosexuality there were no books by by authors who were admittedly homosexual, there. So it was easy to get the idea that you were the only one on Earth. I had no access to any kind of pornography, um, and again, it, you know, when you're in the fifth grade, it's not like you're you're you're, you're practicing. But I, I mean, I, I, I knew that I was. I knew that that my interest in other guys was not shared. You know, the, in the same way, right?
1: Yeah. So the public library.
2: Yeah, so I learned... Fond memories. I learned that, and then I didn't... I would have to read things for school, and I would do it, but begrudgingly. And then I, when I was 20, I was living in Oregon in a trailer, and I was picking apples, and I was living there by myself, and I was very lonely, and... I was in a small town, and I got a library card, and that's when I really started reading, when I when I discovered the joy of reading, I and,
1: and what did you start with? Like, what did you first take off the shelf and take a chance on?
2: The first book that I read was, oh, golly, I was just thinking of this book the other day, and it's the, the name of the book is uh, uh, Babbitt. 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 Is it... Was that... S- so like Upton the, Sinclair the, Yes, that sounds Sinclair. Great. Nice.
1: the host of the, the I know literary I, show should probably know this
2: I know I after wish that, were that here I read today. I read The Jungle and oh, oh okay that's
1: Upton Sinclair yeah. definitely yeah oh so serious so I started so very, reading
2: things that you were supposed to read in high school right? and then I sort of gravitated and I, I did a shelf of new books and there was a book by this fellow named Raymond Carver and, and from never, that region too right but I'd never you know I didn't know anything about him and I think when I picked up that book and I read those stories I remember thinking this seems possible mm. but he he was very deceptive that way you know he made it look incredibly easy his sentences were very short he repeated words a lot he made it look like anybody could do it then of course when you tried you realized like oh that guy's That guy knows what he's doing.
1: And getting the emotional quantity through without it ever being with a two-by-four over your head.
2: But then reading his books and then looking at the back of his books, and then you see, I would see who blurbed his books, right? And then I would go read their books.
1: Mm. Oh, okay. And then,
2: you know, so that led me to Joy Williams, which led me to to Tobias Wolfe, which led me to to Barry Hanna, to... uh, to, And on uh, their
1: book jackets as well then right as well
2: and I didn't realize at the time that the people who blurb your books those are actually called friends you know the people (laughs) who who blurb your books but I liked him and I liked his friends and I read like that for years just one person leading me to another to another to another and again that was all library reading because I couldn't afford when I moved to Chicago there was a, a bookstore in my neighborhood called unabridged books and I remember Richard Ford came to Unabridged Books, and I could not believe that I was going to be able to see in person this, per- this, this man whose, whose books I, uh, I so loved. And uh, Tobias Wolf came, and I, I literally sat at his feet, right? I, which is where I belonged. Right? I but was that weird? Were you the only one up there at his feet? There were other people, but I was convinced that, that you they were... did not understand him the way that I did. And I still am convinced that nobody understands him the way that I do. Still? Yes. I mean, that's a bit you know that is, fanatic, uh... right, though, David? Yes. No, but you know how that is with certain. It's, it's interesting. I wouldn't. It's interesting how that is with certain public figures, right? I'm convinced that I'm the only one on earth who understands how good-looking Matt Damon is. I don't think you know that Matt Damon (laughs) is good-looking. I don't think that you appreciate it.
1: That's true, because he might not rank in my top ten,
2: perhaps. Well, I don't don't think... And then I I learned how to work (laughs) the computer, and I found this site called I Met Matt. And it's all these people who write in about meeting Matt Damon and, you know, going up to him in a restaurant or whatever... And they don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand Matt Damon. They don't have that
1: connection. Like you have the through line to his, his soul. You know, Not I, just
2: his heart, but his soul. I've never met the guy. I've never seen him. I don't know anything about him. I, don't, I haven't seen all of his movies, but I'm convinced. In the same way, I'm convinced that Whoopi Goldberg, okay, I saw her Broadway show, the first one she did, on videotape. I saw it like I don't know. I bet I I bet I sat through it fifty times. And if she does things that that aren't very good, like if she's in Hollywood Squares or whatever, I feel like I'm the only one who knows what she's really capable of. And I don't care if she were to come in here right now and slap me, wouldn't erase <laughs> the way that I, I I would still have that feeling for her. Right,
1: and suffer for her a bit for some of those moments, maybe on Hollywood square. Well, well
2: it's the same as sometimes you know what like sometimes you'll feel that people betrayed your your trust or betrayed your your faith in them. And again it's somebody who never met you someone who doesn't It's it's interesting that the relationships that we have with people that we can never know.
1: And the because it, it's the imaginative world, right, which seems to be part of the the writer's everyday anyway, but then um yeah you have these it's it's as if it's part of your identity to know them as well. It's somehow they become i don't know part of, grafted onto you even though it's almost like you're picking heroes in some ways or something qualities that you like about them and by admiring them so much they they become more Yours? I don't know. Like, I had that for John McEnroe when I was a kid huh. watching tennis. Cause, oh, that's interesting. Well, because he was an angry kind of young man, and I was little, like I was in, I don't know, middle school, and I wasn't, I couldn't be angry, and I had to be very, like, somewhat well-behaved, and I don't know. And I think when he was at Wimbledon, I was like, that's right. Do you stick it to the English People, I hope my English relatives aren't listening right now, but.
2: But, but he didn't come after you. you gravitated to him for some strange reason, so it's yes. it, it, that's it's just like I might have that feeling about tobias wolf and and Matt Damon, but they didn't ask they didn't you know ask for it,
1: and they'll never know. well, Matt Damon might because I'm sure you know well, I, I, one of I his met, friends is listening right now. <laughs>
2: I met Tobias Wolf. Um, but it, it wasn't... At the bookshop, right? Oh, well, I okay. met him at the bookshop, and I met him... I have a friend of mine was teaching at Syracuse when he was teaching there. And I was talking to her about how much I love his writing, and she said, oh, you mean Toby? His big fall bash is next week. You should come up to his party, right? So I took the train to Syracuse, and I went to his house. There was a party he was having at his house. And I should never meet people I admire like that. I just scare them, I think. Even if I don't say anything, I put out this sort of toxic uh, admiration fumes, right? And I think (laughs) I frighten them. But three weeks later, he came to New York on a book tour, and I waited in line to get my book signed. And I was approaching the table, and he said, David! And that meant so much to me. You know, when everybody thought that Tobias Wolf was my friend. And that was so. I don't know. I, I in the bookstore too when he when he came that time he was so. He, you know I I did I couldn't afford a hardcover of his new book and so I had a pay you know hit the paperbacks of his other ones and don't he he gave me a you know the, just the way he gave me attention I thought you know if I can ever do that if I ever have a book that's what I'm going to do.
1: And have you been able to? to do that for oh yeah remember oh, yeah. people because that would be hard because you probably okay well in terms of people remembering and, people's or, names okay.
2: to be perfectly honest i'm more inclined to remember somebody um i guess they have a hump or something you know Like
1: <laughs> somehow i think i knew you were going to say that that's really disturbing or a hook for a hand you right, know i yeah. mean
2: Something like that, and more inclined to remember. Um,
1: <laughs> Looking out your view, your vista of your Peter Pan
2: chimneys, right? But I like, I like, uh, you know. Sometimes when I when I'm on a book tour or whatever, uh, gosh, I remember a couple of years ago, the store manager came and said, you know, you need to hurry this up. And I said, well, if you know, if you want to close the store, you can go ahead and do that, and I'll give you money, and you run out and buy a card table. And you can send everybody home, and I'll just sit at the card table in front of the store, because I'm not going to speed sign, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to not talk to people. Partly, and partly, that's for selfish reasons. You know, I met, like, I met someone last night, and I said, "What do you do?" And he said, "I have a haunted house." And I said, "All year?" <laughs> <And> he, <laughs> yeah, all year. <laughs> this guy has a haunted house, and I met a chime master. You yep. know who, who tolls? He he tolls, right? I guess he, he tolls bells somewhere at a church, oh, I suppose. Ah.
1: Uh, you d- don't ask who it tolls. No,
2: <laughs> but, <laughs> um, I I enjoy it.
1: Let's take a short break, David, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers today. David Sedaris and his book which I've neglected to mention, I'm not doing my part here, When You Are Engulfed in Flames by Little Brown, just pub, just out uh, with Little Brown. Uh, we'll be right back.
3: Trust in me In all you do Have the faith I have in you Love will see us through If only you trusted me
0: Why don't you,
3: you trust me Come to me When things go wrong Cling to me, Daddy Oh yeah, and I'll be strong We can get along, we can get along trust in me. future why don't you smile trust in me and i be worthy of
1: you oh, yeah, yeah. Why- good afternoon i'm t hetzel this is living writers and if you're just joining us david sedaris is in the studio today he's uh currently uh Huffing it around the U.S. with his, his latest collection of essays, When You Are Engulfed in Flames. Um,
2: when You Are Engulfed in Flames.
1: And that refers, that's to the longest story, doesn't it? Or, or is it yes. some, some more with the in the smoking section?
2: Yes, the- I was in uh, Hiroshima, and I was in a hotel, and there was a book in my hotel called Best Knowledge of Disaster Damage Prevention and Favors to Ask of You. And then it was broken into little chapters you know paragraph long chapters when you check in a hotel when you find a fire and when you are (laughs) engulfed in flames
1: oh but such a different meaning with where you found it too
2: right right when you think about it in hiroshima um but it's funny too like that you would be engulfed in flames and you would think damn what did i read in that that book what did i read in that book
1: But you seem to have a steel trap like you're you're rattling off these long pieces of, you know, like titles and name and and you do it in your your book as well. Like one of them I thought was great when you you said that um, when you bought the medical uh, forensic dictionary or book that showed. Oh, uh, medical
2: legal investigations of death
1: yes and and you said that the captions you thought were priceless they could be made into poems that was like one of your extensive mildew on the face of a recluse I was <laughs> then, thinking
2: about that for the title of the book but you'd have to have the picture and and and, and that could be expensive right like the royalties on that no, just well but this book right which seems to me it's a Van Gogh painting the cover and I saw it many years ago at the Van Gogh museum I saw the I've postcard I've always wanted to go there well, I just saw the postcard, right, because I, I just like museum gift shops. And I thought, when I saw it, I thought, oh, I'd like that as my book cover. And it's a picture of a skeleton from the, from the shoulders up smoking a cigarette, right? But getting this on a book cover was so hard that getting a dead man, a dead recluse with extensive with milk going on his face, I can't imagine. That would be a breeze. That, no, that would have been so hard. They be- never would have let me. But I think extensive mildew on the face of a recluse. I I think it's a really good title for a book.
1: Did you memorize the poem that you, the subsequent poem you wrote from that?
2: Oh, behold the recluse looking pensive. Mildew though is quite extensive on his head, both fore and on his head both aft and fore. He uh, mildew though is obviously I don't quite. I don't, <laughs> He maybe shoulda got out more.
1: Maybe, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Um, I wish i would Yeah. He maybe shoulda got out more. Yeah. That was the nice, nice pacing there. The shoulda. But um, so so are you are you also writing um, in in other genres because you've you've completely got this this one nailed obviously and the this American Life pieces that you do for NPR. Um,
2: I've been it, working on these stories i'm working on a book about little stories about animals right so they're i, I want to call them fables but fables i think are a lot sharper in their morals these are a little bit fuzzy near the end um and they're all around the same length
1: fuzzy fables a new <laughs> a new category
2: or <laughs> unstable fables unstable fables <laughs> I, th- but what i think it was a way of getting back into fiction writing an easy way to get back into fiction writing. Like, if I were to say that... uh, Oh, I don't know. If I were to write that uh, T and Jesse went out to lunch, right? I have to describe you, and I have to describe Jesse. But if I say the squirrel and the chipmunk went out to lunch, everybody knows what a squirrel and a chipmunk look like. And I set up rules for myself. I was not going to give any of the animals names. It's the squirrel and the chipmunk. And (laughs) I just... Often, I think if I'm having a problem, i'll take I try to take a step back and write a story uh, like an animal story that way. You know, if something's really bothering me, and I think, you know what's really bothering me is that I'm being vain. that That's the whole problem. that That's where all this problem comes from is I'm being vain or I'm being stupid or I'm jealous of somebody. So, and it, it, okay. It might so, a be...
1: present situation in your life, not yes. related to the what's happening in the writing itself.
2: Though. No, no, no. Okay. The present situation in my life, and then I, I'll just uh, sort of use these stories as a way of making fun of myself, I suppose, and lightening my burden that way. Like I just finished a story about a really ugly fox, and then I finished <laughs> another story <Nice> about, one. <laughs> about a male ladybug. Nice. And then after I wrote about the male ladybug, I remembered that movie Bugs. I haven't seen that. It's that no, Pixar movie? Mm-hmm. And then I thought, damn it, because there's a male ladybug in that. Uh, so I thought I could change it to a male damselfly or a female man of war.
1: Mm. But uh,
2: then the I whole setting is yeah. But the whole thing, <laughs> it's so ladybuggy. So I'll just yeah, keep it. I'll you just can't suddenly it.
1: throw them in the ocean and, right. then, and then put a raft in a tiger. Well, then the it. hard
2: thing, too, is it... So in this ladybug story, right? It's a female ladybug, and then somebody's chatting her up, right? I mean, it's a male ladybug, but someone thinks it's a female, and it's chatting her up, right? So I had an aphid chatting her up. <laughs> and I didn't realize, I did some research, ladybugs eat aphids, right? So that's not going to happen, right? So... And then I had an ant in there, right, with the aphid and the ladybug, and I did not realize that ants eat something called honeydew, and honeydew is a liquid that they massage out of of an an aphid's rectum. (laughs) An ant will (laughs) massage an aphid's rectum, and then get the sweet juice out of it, and then live off of it. But it doesn't. It's like milking. The aphid's butt,
1: right, right?
2: Basically, is what it does.
1: <laughs> That's a good visual there. Good for radio,
2: David. <laughs> um, so that wouldn't work, you know, <laughs> because if an ant and an aphid right. were together,
1: other things would be The ant would just the be saying, "Ladybug would not be involved." Right. Right. Yeah.
2: So, or the <laughs> story about the fox. I thought, okay, the fox's sister had got. She was. Sexually assaulted, and she had a baby, right? But I didn't realize, you, foxes just can't have babies whenever. Like there's a time of year when foxes have babies. So that meant I had to switch the season in my story. So There's always something, even though you think it's fiction, right? Well, whenever you publish a <laughs> story, fables. like in the New Yorker or whatever, you, you've always got some little expert out there somewhere, right? Who So... And they're always the first person. Like when I get back to when I get back home, there will be a stack of letters from grammarians, who will have found typos, or grammatical errors in my book, and they love to write you. They they. But why get...
1: don't they just write the publisher? Because that's their deal. Like your 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 gig is coming up with the the content, and it doesn't. And it might be something you intended as well. It could right? No, be... they
2: want they want you to know. Like I, I wrote this thing in the New Yorker. Uh, I gave it the commencement speech at Princeton a couple of years ago. So I wrote this thing in The New Yorker. It, it was, my, it was a, my, basically my commencement speech. Right? What
1: I've Learned? Yeah. No. yeah. Oh, yeah. it's called was... What I
2: Learned. And I got a message on my answering machine in London. And this guy looked me up and he said, I am so sick to death of your and The New Yorker's constant H and Y. Uh, H and Y, <laughs> what was it he said, uh, not backstabbing, but something like that. And he went on and, on and on and on. And I realized he meant Harvard and Yale. So this guy sees a oh. pattern in the New Yorker. <laughs> a conspiracy. The New Yorker, right, is against Harvard and Yale. And I'm part of that conspiracy.
1: Right, right. But it
2: was funny that he said <laughs> anti-H and Y.
1: Because in his world, of course, everyone would know what that meant, right? Like in his right. narrow <laughs> world where it's He's kind of hemmed in by all the ivy. But you hate to make,
2: I mean, he, he was just a nut, but like, just in terms of a regular story, you hate to make that sort of mistake. So, yeah, th- that's a good thing about having things in the New Yorker because, like, I had the story about spiders in the New Yorker and
1: was that April in Paris? Yes, is that
2: one. Okay. And my fact checker at the New Yorker contacted me and said, All right, well, you've written in this story that this spider is the size and shape of an unshelled peanut. And it's actually not that shape, so I suggest you change it to something else. And I and I said no. I, peanut's something that you can have in your mind, and the color was right.
1: Yeah. And um, so, so you kept it because I think I remember you saying peanut in here.
2: And I'd written that the spider became obese, and its her feet tore holes in the web. But oh, right. that doesn't happen either. But that's just what we call a joke. <laughs>
1: I, I so are you finding yourself saying that more and more recently to people because I hadn't I hadn't read the I guess somebody like hurts the guy heard or someone who wrote the article saying that he fact checked things like from from your one of your earlier books Naked right and saying oh this couldn't possibly be true and you know and and with well Christ, he went to North
2: Carolina with the the Naked right thinking hitchhiked with a quadriplegic indeed. Found out a hitchhike with a quadriplegic. nudist colony indeed found out I'd been to a nudist colony. So <laughs> all basically all the stuff that he was checking turned out to be true, so then he went like then he went a little bit deeper. Like I worked at a mental institution when I was fifteen and I said the buildings were gothic. They're Tuscan revival.
1: So that was his. That's what he had on you. That
2: was his big. (laughs) That was his big thing. Another thing was I had. I went to speech class when I was in elementary school, and I'd referred to speech class as future homosexuals of America. He contacted my (laughs) elementary school principal and said, "Did you round up suspected homosexuals and send them to speech class?" And the guy said, "No," but I meant that as a joke. It didn't occur to me that anybody would take that think seriously. think that, that was
1: actually your indictment of the whole thing. He called,
2: uh, I went to a nudist colony. He called the nudist colony, uh, nudist, senior citizens, nudist trailer park. And he said, <laughs> David Sedaris was there and he wrote about it and, and according to him, you're all kooks and oddballs. And this woman said, we are just like everybody else and anyone who says different is a big fat liar. Well, she's She was naked sitting in a room with her full-grown son. I mean... If but she was always, like everybody else, yeah. she'd have had her clothes on. <laughs> right.
1: Exactly. But he was like he got the soundbite he wanted, probably. Big right. fat liar. So that was nice to drop in somewhere. But I,
2: I mean, I've always been upfront about the way that I write. You know. I mean, also this is a book that he was fact checking, in which my mother is driving and she hits a cat with her car, and the cat dies, comes back to life, and speaks English. So right. the fact that it includes some exaggeration. Didn't seem like didn't front page news it. to me, right? Um, but you know, I think there's a. I mean, I'm, I've never presented myself as a reporter. I've never tried to get a reporting job. I've never, you know, applied. Uh, but I think there's a difference. I think there is a difference between writing. You know, there are people who write nonfiction, and there are people who call what they write nonfiction. And I'm in that latter group, but. I was always, nonfiction was a word that we were allowed to use until, I don't know. I mean, now I think people are trying to change that rule. But
1: but only in the last couple of years, because I think there was that boom in it where everyone was happy to call it creative nonfiction, at least in writing programs. You know, so that was sort of a nod to that. But But I
2: think there's this belief that if you, I think there's this belief that your publisher says to you, well, if you call it fiction... We're going to... Right, then yeah. you can sell ten times more copies, and my publisher never ever pushed me. But don't they one say that about memoir other.
1: now? Like that was what like if memoirs will sell more. I, but only in the last decade.
2: I mean, there were there were a lot of memoirs written over the past decade, and, I, and my, my and my feeling is that people just decided that not people decided they were sick of them, but I think. Certain editors of magazines and newspapers decided they're sick of them, and so...
1: But I would never put your books in a memoir category.
2: I don't think I've ever written one. No. Um, The the truth is is in there. It's all in the... But if you're writing about something that happened 20 years ago, or if you're writing about something that happened two weeks ago, I suppose... I mean, you're remembering it, right? So I, I suppose in that sense... The only people who aren't writing memoir are people who are doing blogs, right? Who are writing about what's happening just in the, moment. in the moment. But I don't know. I always need sort of some time to pass. But I guess my feeling is, if I'm going to make stuff up, then I'm going to write about an ugly fox. You know. I guess I, I write a story. I put it on the scale. I say 97 percent of it is true, and that's that's an acceptable level for all kinds of like drugs and fuels and stuff. I mean, it's really high acceptable <laughs> for cocaine. Do you know what I mean? If you right. had cocaine that was 97% <laughs> pure, that's really great. But I wouldn't... That's a good way to measure writing too, David. But I guess there are people who would say, okay, well, if that 3% isn't true, then you need to call it fiction. But mm-hmm. I don't I don't think for 3%, I would call it fiction. Because
1: um, that seems untrue to say that then.
2: Uh, well, I mean, I, I, but I don't, I mean, I think, too, that I don't think that my audience is, is listening to me or reading me to learn, oh, I don't know, like, what the buildings were like at this mental institution in North Carolina. I mean, I, that's, a, that's what called a mistake. That's not called a lie. It's called a mistake, and I. And it's sloppy of me.
1: But it's close enough for government work. I mean, Gothic, Tuscan Revival.
2: Well, I was embarrassed by that, and I probably should have. I should have looked it up. But I don't think that it was evidence enough to call me a liar.
1: Mm-mm. We're going to take a short break, and we'll come right back with David Sedaris, his book, "When You Are Engulfed in Flames." <laughs>
3: like you My dearest darling i make your life full of happiness.
1: Welcome back. If you're just joining us today on Living Writers, um, I'm speaking with David Sedaris. I, I should have mentioned that this is a taped show, so uh, June 9th. Uh, but, uh, but David, thank you for coming to the studio and talking to me while you're on. On tour for the book.
2: Yes, I'm on a book tour. Is
1: it? Are you sort of? You're sort of at the beginning of it, right?
2: I started. I started a week ago. Okay. But I like a book tour. Like it. I mean, I think if you go on a book tour, and there are eight people in the audience, I think there's nothing harder on earth. But if there are eight hundred people, it's easy.
1: But that's. But the eight people thing that doesn't happen to you anymore, does it? I wouldn't think. No. Okay. All right. All right. Because I don't want to sit here and feel sorry for you for any reason at all. No. But I think it's still like I don't know. With but if it's eight people, that still could be like they could be the most intelligent or phenomenal. Well, that's eight what people you would have to tell universe. yourself.
2: But you know, when you when you're in a bookstore, right? If if you're reading in a bookstore, what you want is, whether you're in a bookstore or in a theater or anywhere, you want people to listen and pay attention. But if that you're going energy. and, and then there are people like. Who are just there shopping, and just sort of looking at you and walking away, or talking on their cell phones, or someone's really making espresso
1: too, or right? Espresso. Or they don't
2: turn the intercom system off. Or <laughs> it, it's—I went to the Philippines on a book tour uh, a couple of years ago, and I did an event, and it said, "Oh, you're going to be reading at the like uh, such, such and such mall, Makati Mall, right?" So. I thought they meant a bookstore in the mall, but they just meant the mall. Like, there's a fountain, and then I'm next to the fountain. <laughs> <laughs> Pizza slices. <laughs> and Get they your had, hot donut holes. <laughs> they had uh, a microphone set up, and they, they were chairs, and there were people sitting in the chairs, but then there were just people kind of shopping and, like, on the next level looking down at me, too, and moving on. And, and, and I, it's okay to visit that, you know? And especially in another country, I mean, every time I go to another country, I'm sort of starting over. So it's it's actually good to remember that to remember what it's like.
1: Yeah, it shocks something into you, so you things get in get to you again, right? Well, I
2: always appreciated. You know, I, I I I sincerely and genuinely appreciate uh, people showing up, but it's good then to go without it, so then you really super appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. I see. What, well, let's talk a little bit about um, your story in when you are engulfed in flames. That's amore. Where because. Um, Cause actually when I, I teach uh, college writing here, uh, s- some terms, not every term, but, um, and one of I use one of your stories from me, talk pretty one day to when we're moving from when the students, um, I'm trying to show them, we, we start with details and then we move into considering voice and which is kind of exciting, I think for college freshmen because you know, the five paragraph essay has sort of uh, pounded quite, right. quite a bit of voice out of there probably, um, but anyway, so I was thinking how your story. So I'm sort of fishing for stories for other future terms, and I was thinking That's Amore is a wonderful character study because it's it's about a, a former neighbor of yours, Helen. Right. Um, I and I don't know what it's. She's dead by the end of the story, so I'm. I can only think that in a way, this was some sort of uh, memorial to Helen writing this
2: story, or she died in 1997. And I wrote a story about her in 1999 that was in Esquire. And I knew that at the time that I published it that it was too early. Um, Because something can happen and then uh, you have to get a certain – me anyway – get a certain distance away from it. Right? And then then you think, oh, I'm at the right distance to write about Mrs. Peacock now. You know, like 42 years after I last saw her. (laughs) Or I'm at the right point. And every summer – Every summer I would go back to that story about Helen, and uh, and I think I just had to be able to put her in a certain perspective, but she was a neighbor of ours, and it's, it's interesting, like someone said a few days ago, why were you friends with that horrible person? And I said, what horrible person? I mean, she did a lot of really heinous things, <laughs> but she was funny, and you don't ever want to write So-and-so was funny. She made me laugh. I think it's best to just show them being funny. And to me, I did show her being funny. But if that's not your idea of funny, I can't help you. Right. I can't help you. I mean, if you don't think that it's funny to attack a deaf mute, I I can't help you. (laughs)
1: And how she actually threw her shoulder out in the process, and that was one of the more tender <laughs> moments in the story the day after when you were rubbing the tiger bomb on her, yeah, that was great that was um no, I think, but that's but that's what I think is is wonderful in in these these details that you choose because also um writing about something that's emotional uh with this this gravity, like how do you write? She made me laugh you don't do that you you piece together these these moments these these um these the sort of vignettes stories.
2: actually i mean it's all stuff that i had in my diary i mean but i and then it became a question of what to remove because there were there were quite a few things about helen
1: and what are connected to deepen what you mean from the story right that's what you would keep
2: is well, that what you do well well there, there were other things about helen that i think if i had written that people wouldn't forgive her they wouldn't be able to forgive her i could forgive her because she lived right across the hall and it was it's, it was too uncomfortable to go without talking to her. I didn't want an enemy that close. Plus, um
1: she she provided some sort of um, stability for you like or consistency to your life.
2: Well, I think, too, that sometimes with, with people like that, when they do really horrible things, it depends. Like, Helen was the kind of person who was so angry, so full of rage, that my disapproval wasn't going to add anything to it. I mean, she was already so unhappy on one level that w- what was my disapproval going to do at all was it going to make me feel like a better person
1: Wait, um this tell me if this is not a question like if you don't like this question but sure. i was wondering like why why didn't the story let go of you like you felt like you'd written it too early and then but it, it's it wasn't something that went away either um so, so we can talk about revision, too, but, but I'm wondering if it isn't, because there's a, a moment in the story where um, she she asks you to come, and there's some, a stain on her, her ceiling right. with the, the white shoe polish, I think it was, or, some, or shoe right. polish. Or... She
2: was convinced that there was dog urine on her ceiling from the people upstairs, and she wanted me to cover her ceiling in white shoe polish, and I just wasn't in the mood that day. And I left, and she tried to do it herself the following morning, and she fell off the ladder, and she broke her hip, and then she had to was sent to the hospital and then had strokes in the hospital and she died a few months later. And, you know, I've always been thinking, like, why couldn't I put the damn shoe polish on her ceiling? Um, But at the same time, I believe that... I mean, Helen was really sort of preparing for that. She got rid of just about everything. She would show me what she wanted to wear in her casket, you know, the dress that she wanted to wear. She couldn't leave her house anymore she was ready mm.
1: yeah. yeah yeah but i think because i because i think there's this moment in the story which i think um by building everything else around it it's a quiet moment but it's this uh when i think one of the neighbors said why like why did she or why did she do it or what would make her do so why would she be polishing her shoes on a stool and you were like something beats like me. Uh, beats me. Yeah. And I think that's like th- that moment where it's like a really, a human moment, which would be because in the whole, anything can happen at any time to us, good or bad, right? Like the, 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 in the universe, but, but that moment, that's a human moment that you include, which I think takes also a lot of guts because you're, you're writing there in that quiet moment. Like, Oh, I don't know, but you did know. And this is story is, that's one of the layers to it. Or maybe I'm making well, too much of I'm
2: something. Very, <laughs> okay. I'm very lucky that I have a really good editor because I, that moment when I say um, – that, that moment when, when our neighbor, Joe, has, you know, wonders why anybody would polish their shoes on a, and, a, and I say, meets me, it was phrased in a different way so that it was more designed for me to get a laugh. And my editor said, "You know what? I think this is too loud, and I think you need to make this more quiet. And I need you need to give, you need to give the world this moment instead of like yourself." And it was a really good, it was a good call.
1: Yeah. So how do you balance that with the humor? Because I, in some of the stories, I do. I wonder if you're, like, do you feel pressure to bring it to that? Even if there's like a gravity to the story, does that then up the pressure to bring some? more humor into it. To...
2: Well, like that story, I went to the United States. Usually I go on these lecture tours every fall and every spring. Every October and, and every April, generally, I go to like 30 cities in 30 days.
1: Oh, that must be great. Well, it I is. mean, and Tyrene, but great.
2: No, it's good opportunity to work on stories. But then I had some stories, some like the story about smoking and the story about Helen. Um, after my tour last fall, I went back to Europe and in November and December I I worked on smoking and then Helen and I wanted a chance to try it out in front of an audience so I went to the Steppenwolf Theater for a week and then I went to UCLA for a week and that helped a lot because I could read about Helen and then I could get a laugh and then I would think what would happen if I went without this laugh and because I already proved that I could get it if and once you prove that you can get it, then you can get rid of it, right? But if you never got it to begin with, then you feel like, like, like you're not good enough, right? So th- that's what those tours are good for, is that they help me. There's, I think, okay, because uh, like my sister used to be at Second City, right? And I would go and I would see Amy on stage, and I would and I would see the Second City show, and I would laugh, laugh, laugh. But then I would leave and I didn't remember anything right i mean i remember thinking oh god that guy's really funny and you know and so that's when the pacing
1: comes into it like the rhythm of letting the story be itself kind of in these places where there are quiet moments is that is that
2: what you mean well i think it's like i if if you just interject some like good old sorrow into it i think that that's what sort of makes it more memorable right i mean it, but how it gives it the that? story a little bit of weight i think
1: and how did, how to because to inject the sorrow, like how?
2: Well, with Helen, like, I mean, it wasn't like, it was never formulaic. I mean, it was just sort of already there. And then it was just sort of, I've never driven, but I think it was sort of like letting your foot off one pedal and, and laying it on the other or whatever, or let, letting you, taking both your feet off the pedals and realizing, oh, that's what happens now. That's mm. what, you know what, I mean, this is.
1: It's the natural momentum for a moment or.
2: Well, I, I guess it was trying to. to uh, I, I mean, the stuff that Helen said was, you know, I mean, a lot of what she said was just super funny. I mean, it was just funny to me. But you know, how that can be like somebody can say something really funny, and then you realize you hear them say the same thing two minutes later to somebody else, and then you realize that it's they're kind of that it's their bit, and that they're actually like a lonely person. Um, You know, just, I guess, letting those parts show, I suppose, every now and then. And then with myself, too. I mean, I think the story was about, not just about Helen, but my relationship with Helen and what I needed at that time. And she was just there. You know, she was just there for whoever could stand her.
1: Literally, you couldn't get away from her because she'd
2: be at your door at eight AM or something, right? Yeah, she would call pretty much every morning, David. <laughs> David. Even if I didn't, pick, if I didn't pick up the phone,
1: everyone's adjusting their radio dial now. Um, and so, so with revision, David, because that sounds like then you have these uh, like skeletons of the the stories for a while. Like how many? Like what? What's a What's a process for one of your stories in your book collections? What's the process of revision on that? Like how, how, how many drafts would you, is that impossible? Like
2: I'm going on a lecture tour in October, right? So I have these two, so so far, these two stories that I've written, two essays that I've written for the lecture tour, right? And I've written them both three times. And I'm going to write, rewrite them after my book tour is over.
1: Yes, with those notes from the what you've told us about the audience. And the...
2: No, no, because I'm not going to read them out loud on my book tour. Because I, I, when you're on a book tour, you're kind of supposed to read from the book. So I have little short things that I'm reading. But these are stories that are like 10, 12 pages long. Okay. So I rewrite them a few more times. And I'd, 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 there have been a couple of times when I've given things to my editor at The New Yorker. And, and they've been published before I got a chance to read them in front of a live audience. And I don't like to do that. Because one good thing about reading out loud in front of an audience is then my editor will say, mm, I think you can cut this. And, and then I'm able to say, actually, that's the biggest laugh in the whole story. Right? Or Or I can agree with him and I know that he's right. I just like to learn as much as I can on my own before I give it to my editor. Because... I would never give my editor a first draft because then, by the eighth draft, he's really going to be sick of it. So I'd rather give him the eighth draft and work with him until the twelfth.
1: And this is someone who is trusted. Like it's, it sounds like it's the same person.
2: You know, I'm you. so lo- it's the same is person. Okay. But but uh, I got the galley's for a book maybe I don't know, shoot, maybe like eight years ago, right? A book um, called The Columnist. And they were fake memoirs of a conservative political columnist. And I, I howled with laughter. And it was by a guy named Jeffrey Frank. And then when I started working with The New Yorker a lot, they said, oh, we're you know we going to assign you an editor. This guy's name is Jeffrey Frank. And I was so, so – it worked uh-huh. out great because I had already – was familiar with him and had, had so admired his novel. And it's
1: like you had a connection like Tobias Wolf, Like you'd had a connection yeah. with him,
2: right? Yeah, <laughs> a little secret one. And then it became formal. But he's he's really good, and I, I love working with him. But the fellow I used to work with at Esquire, he left and he went to GQ. But that was another situation where I really, really love working with him. So I've, I've been very lucky. And with Ira, you know, it's the same thing. So I've been I, – I, I wish – I can't really – when people talk about how awful the Redditors are, I – I really can't relate. I'm, I'm very fortunate that way.
1: Knock wood. That's good. That's, that's... Actually, the
2: only time I ever had like a bad one, it's that fellow who wrote the article for The New Republic. Oh, really? Um, he was working at The New York Times Magazine for a while, and I was asked to write about a TV show. And I wrote about the story Cops. And then the story came out, and parts of it were rewritten. Without? No, Without I was any... not asked. Like the word uh, hooker was used. And I would never... I mean, I'd used the word prostitute and he changed it to hooker. I mean I guess he thought that it was it was somebody else thinking, Oh, it'd be funny to do this but it's like I'll be the judge of that. Right. Please. But that's
1: <laughs> and you, But weirdly and, enough,
2: that was the only bad experience I ever had.
1: And you and and well, and you will be the judge, David Sedaris. You will be the judge. Thank you so much for being
2: on Living Writers. Well, I'm glad I could make it while I was still alive. <laughs> Me too. Um, That's been my new thing to say, because uh, we went to Italy. Sono vecchio. And that means I'm old in Italian. <laughs>
1: Oh, lovely well thank you david sedaris um his book when you are engulfed in flames um david come back anytime please <laughs> i would love any, to anytime thank um, you t <laughs> and thanks to jesse johnston for uh, engineering uh this has been the living writers t hetzel until next time
3: Dry your eyes And let's be sweethearts again And oh, cause you know You know I didn't mean To ever treat you so mean Come on, come on sweetheart And let's try it over again
0: my baby told me not so very long ago he said I don't love you baby and you got to you got to let Wow, Enough of nothing to so keep me, keep me happy.
2: and advice presented
0: are not intended as a substitute for medical counseling but we want you to move your ass here at WCBN weekdays excluding Friday from 6 to 6.30
1: let's get some more Richard Simmons Thank you.
0: have a good time wow, inhale blow it out where oh, does that ever get the blood circulating
3: From the Delta to Chicago, New York to St. Louis, Memphis,
1: Texas, Detroit, Michigan, and the California coast. Across this great land, the voice of the blues comes your way every Saturday afternoon from 3 to 5 p.m. It's
3: called Nothing But the Blues. And since 1975, WCBN has been the vehicle through which the true roots of the blues travels the highways, back roads, juke joints, inner city clubs, smoky rooms, and back porches of America right to
1: your doorstep. Join me, Jerry Mack, for an excursion into the true American musical experience on Nothing But the Blues, Saturdays from 3 to 5 p.m., right here on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, August 8, 2012 in Los Angeles. I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, clashes continue on the ground in Aleppo as human rights groups point to satellite images that appear to show Syrian military attacks in civilian areas. Challenges to the U.S. policy on detention and due process return to federal courts. And we'll go to Colorado, where residents push forward a ballot measure to limit big money in politics. Those stories and more coming up after this news.
2: I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. Hundreds of angry residents attended Chevron's town hall meeting in Richmond, California last night. The oil company called the meeting after a huge fire at its Richmond refinery released a giant plume of toxic smoke over the San Francisco Bay Area. Several hundred people sought medical attention. For FSRN, Sally Schilling reports. At the meeting, more
1: than 400 neighbors of the Richmond oil refinery demanded that Chevron stop poisoning their communities.
2: Stop
0: poisoning our homes! We are Richmond! We are Richmond! And we are watching you! And we are watching you!
1: The crowd addressed a panel that included many city and county